Don't ever do that. How are you doing? Good. Uh, well, I want to welcome you. want to welcome those watching Duval Issaquah online as well. Uh, as I was thinking of that, about the sticky situations that you can get in uh, male-female relationships, my wife, it is her birthday uh, this weekend. And so, yep, she's turning 30 again, and so I'm trying to figure out what to do with that. And uh, I was thinking, what should I get her for her birthday? We've been married for 22 years, and what she really wants is a vacuum. I didn't get her a vacuum. I know some of you are wondering about that. So I was wondering what to get her. And then there's uh, the Amazon wish list. Isn't that a gift from God? That is like that subtle hint of you better buy me these things. And so I thought, well, I'll buy her those in a vacuum and we'll be good. Uh, but then I thought, no, I really needed some more, uh, uh, another gift that's meaningful. And so you, whenever you're looking for true wisdom in life, I did what I always do. I posted the question on Facebook. And uh, here are some of the answers that I got what I should get my wife uh, for her birthday. Uh, number one, uh, a love letter. That was nice. Uh, chocolate, a lot of you said chocolate. That is really not original at all. Uh, three, a gift card to Soma. And I had no idea what Soma was, but now I do, and I'm thinking that was a good idea. So <laughs> anyway, uh, number four, a large box of barbecue ribs. I, I think they were serious, too. And uh, I thought it was scones from the fair. Now, that is a real awesome idea. An Apple Watch. A trip to Maui, uh, a Tiffany bracelet. Wow, I must have gotten a raise I don't know about. Uh, uh, a Salish Lodge spa or their 10-course breakfast. They have, a, have any of you ever been to that? Why haven't you told me about this? I mean, this is awesome. And then finally, Seahawks tickets which is what every woman really wants. Uh, well, uh, I do want to say happy birthday to my wife. And uh, we're here, though, this weekend in this series, Comeback. And we're looking at some of the uh, great comeback stories that we find in the Scripture and how they intersect our lives. Think about some of the uh, great comebacks in sports. Uh, there's Bethany Hamilton. There's uh, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier. There's those great comeback movies or shows, you know, those great comebacks like uh, Rudy, Rocky, The Mighty Ducks, The Walking Dead. I guess not all comebacks are positive, but, the, uh, so you, but, but really you think about it. We love those stories, don't we? Uh, in fact, how many of you wish the Seahawks would have come back last week? <laughs> how many of you were watching the game? Yeah, you were home, and that's the reason they lost. We blame you. Not kidding. Anyway, uh, no, we, uh, we all would love a good comeback story. What does it take for a comeback? The, see, here's a problem. What, what it takes for a comeback is a setback. See, there's some area of our life where we've had a setback. We've had a setback spiritually. We've had a setback financially. We've had a setback in our thinking. We've had a setback relationally. And uh, the real question is how we can turn a setback into a comeback. Well, one of the things we know about a comeback story is that it will always involve change. Uh, if we keep on doing the same things, 
we're not going to have a comeback story in those areas of our life, in those parts of our story, that we would like to experience them. It may be uh, a change in new knowledge that we have, which would be a change of thinking, a change of attitude, which would be a change of heart, or it could uh, eventually be a change of what we're committed to, which could change our future. Uh, If you think about this, family is one of those sort of interesting areas uh, where oftentimes, and that's what we're going to look at today, by the way, in in this series, we're going to look at comebacks in areas of our family, in our thinking, with how we deal with stress, and in our faith. And today in particular, we're going to look at uh, what happens when your family is broken in some way. And I'm going to talk about that. I'm not talking to just about a nuclear family. In fact, the account we're going to look at in the Bible really is between siblings. But what do you do when your family uh, relationships, whether it be a parent or a child or a spouse or a sibling or a grandparent, what do you do when they're broken? See, the problem is we often don't know what that broken thing is. Uh, Have you ever had something on your car, I'm sure you have, where it's not working and you can't figure it out? Uh, Recently, my daughter went through an incredible uh, crisis because her car charger and her USB port on her car was broken. And she said, Dad, I can't listen to my music or charge my phone, which means, Dad, I think I might die today. And uh, so that's, that was it. And I'm like, well, okay, I'll get around to it. I mean, it can't, you know, you can live without it for a while. And it's almost as if God just had a great sense of humor. Mine went out at the same time. And now I knew this was a serious issue. So, uh, well, I, you know, I didn't want to go and take the mechanic. I know some of you are mechanics, which is great. You charge us $100 just to walk in the door. And so I thought, no, I'm going to figure this out on my own. And so I'll start with some little tinkering, and hopefully that'll work, uh, and bought the fuses. I'm hoping that's going to be the solution. Uh, but no matter what, I want to get this thing fixed. And when we approach our relationships, especially the relationships of family, with, you know, I'm not sure what it is, but I want to get this fixed, we're, we're in a great place to make progress. Well, we need to figure out what it is that's broken. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes it's just a circumstance. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, a relationship uh, where you have the stress of a stage of life. Maybe you just had a new child, new parents. It is awesome. Those aren't babies beautiful, but they cry a lot, don't they? And they eat a lot and they poop a lot and they do all those things, you know? And so there's a stress of life that comes with that. Two-year-olds, if you have two-year-olds, they can be challenging or teenagers that act like two-year-olds. One of the things in my house that was a little bit challenging is that I've decided recently to give up caffeine. And uh, so I, I drink up, used to drink about a pot of coffee a day and about five or six sodas a day and then top it off with another coffee at night. Uh, so my blood pressure was a little high, and so I thought, I'm going to get rid of caffeine. And so now I've been no soda, no coffee, no fun. That's what I'm like right now. And so, uh, you know, you can be going through different issues in our life. Maybe it's a health issue. Uh, and the circumstance can introduce some stresses and pressures which can cause brokenness in a relationship. Or is it a sin? Uh, Is it something that uh, I'm doing or someone else is doing? 
that impacts family. Maybe it's the hothead dad who blows up for almost any reason or for no reason at all. Maybe it's the sibling, maybe it's the adult sibling who doesn't feel great about where they're at at life, and so they're going to find a way to cut you down and make you feel bad about yourself. Maybe it's a mom and you could never uh, really live up to her approval and there's always that sense of dissatisfaction. These, these sinful attitudes can impact our relationships. Another question we want to ask is, is it systematic? Is there something in the way we operate that is causing a problem? There's actually a field called family systems in psychology because it's usually uh, not just one of us, it's all of us uh, together. Have you ever been in a conversation, let's say, with a spouse over and over again and nothing changes? Have you ever had that happen? You know what they call that? They call that marriage. No, they, <laughs> they call that dysfunction that we bring into our family. And then there, you might ask the question, is it a spiritual battle? Uh, is, uh, is it a spiritual battle? There's an enemy of our souls that will work overtime in the area of our families. In fact, we read about this in the book of Job in the Bible, which is a very powerful but not a cheery book of the Bible. And in this book, the first place the enemy of our souls attacks him is in his family. And I think that happens to us too, because you can be doing great at work, you can be, you know, have money in the bank, you can be achieving in other areas, but if family life is a wreck, then that place which is supposed to be a, a harbor for the storms of life becomes a storm itself, and everything is thrown off kilter. I know as I say this, some of you say, spiritual battle, is that where, you know? No, there really is an enemy of our souls. You say, yeah, I don't even believe in Satan. That's okay, Satan believes in you, and he will cause problems in your life. Now, here's what happens often, is we uh, over, some people see too many spiritual battles, everything, you know, hey, the, the dry cleaner lost my clothes, it must be Satan after me. No, just a worker at the dry cleaners, not a real big deal. Or we uh, don't see any sense of spiritual battle, but it really is there in our lives. Or is it a someone? Now, it's always a someone to some extent, uh, and usually it's uh, multiple factors uh, all together. In fact, sometimes a someone, it may not even be their fault when you have a family that's in disarray. If you have a, a, a child who... Uh, is struggling uh, maybe uh, with uh, physical issues or emotional or mental issues, uh, that can cause a level of disruption in brokenness in really any family. Or maybe uh, it's the classic where someone in the family is dealing with the issues of addiction, uh, drug or alcohol our sexual addiction, and we just sort of all are good codependents. We don't really address the issue at all, hoping that it'll get better, but it really doesn't. Well, whether it's a big issue or a small issue, uh, we can experience progress in our life. And I want to look at one of the great comeback stories of the Bible. It's, uh, we find it in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, and in fact, a th about a third of the entire first book of the Bible, it's a 50-chapter book, is about 
this one family. And on the outside, you would look at them, and they have a lot of great things going on. But internally, there's chaos. And I know, just from talking to many of you, uh, just people out in the community, that that's often the case. On the outside, it can look okay, but at the foundation there can be some problems. And maybe, like I said, maybe it's not a big one, but maybe it's like a crack in the foundation that if you don't deal with it now, it could become a big issue. So if you want to look along uh, in your notes or in your Bible, as we look at this really cautionary tale family that we find in the Bible. In fact, we're going to read this. It says, uh, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers and the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilphath, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Can you see a potential problem there? Yeah. How many of you were the favorite child? Yeah, I was, and there was good reason. No, the, we all know. That. So, here's, here's the deal, is that uh, the brothers knew daddy was playing favorites. And uh, so this is what we read. Uh, Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. And really what that is, that, that, would, that special gift would uh, be something of incredible value, and this robe would denote authority. So Joseph is the second youngest of the sons, And this robe that dad is giving is basically saying, oh, by the way, Junior here, he's going to be the boss of all of you. That did not go over very well with his brothers. When, uh, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And so we see this situation where resentment is brewing in a family relationship. Now, now it's interesting, if you read this account in the Bible, uh, there are some, you know, incredible uh, ways that God works. Uh, Joseph sees visions uh, that God gives him. But, but the supernatural dynamic is really not so much there in the family relationship. It's the same dynamic that you and I might experience. Now, uh, maybe to more of an extreme, as we'll see in the next verse. It says in Genesis 37, uh, Here comes a dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say a ferocious animal has devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So you have this situation, and here's the good news in the story. If you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, they did not end up killing him. They just ended up selling them into slavery. Really good brothers, aren't they? Uh, so uh, that, that's what they did. And we see the story of Joseph's life uh, unfold. And it's interesting, you would say, this is one family. I mean, if they had Jerry Springer 5,000 years ago, this family would have been on Jerry Springer. Joseph said, yeah, I remember the days my brothers tried to kill me, and then they sold me into slavery. And, and you know, it was really just a messed up family. Uh, now, most of the blame is on dad here, although we know mom was somewhere in the picture, and uh, probably not stopping the situation. And it was a little thing that became a big thing. 
Uh, I have uh, relatives uh, who I know who have not talked to each other for a period, they didn't for a period of 20 years over a little argument. And you say, that seems dumb. My guess is, is that somewhere along the way, that little thing became a bigger thing and the other person didn't say they're sorry. And so now there's this incredible rift in the relationship. So what do you do in a practical way when you have a setback like that in your family? Well, well, we read in Joseph's story, it's a pretty incredible story. God doesn't step in and fix things right away. And in fact, what happens is uh, Joseph, he's sold into slavery through a series of circumstances and really uh, his hard work and, and uh, some miraculous things going on. He eventually ends up uh, decades later as the prime minister, essentially, the number two person, the ruler of Egypt. And that's sort of where we pick up the rest of the story. So he, at first, he's this little teenage boy who's telling his brothers, I'm going to be the boss of you someday. And now, many years later, after they've cast him away, and there was no, you know, they couldn't Google him back then. They didn't find out what he was doing. Uh, they just thought he was gone. Well, we learn uh, some things in the way that J uh, Joseph carried himself that I think are really helpful to us and how to come back really when, you, when your family isn't changing. Uh, number one, uh, you need to keep on moving. Uh, what do I mean by that? Look at what it says in Genesis 39-2. Uh, One of the things we see in, in Joseph's story is that he refuses to be stuck. It said, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And what does this mean? Is that Joseph didn't say, hey, you know, my family has ruined my life and there's nothing I can do. Whatever situation he was in, even when he was uh, in slavery, later on he was in prison, he said, I, I am not going to let my brothers who, in a sense, have ruined my life, I'm not going to let them define my life. So here's my question. Is there some place that you've allowed your upbringing, your past, to define you in such a way that it defeats you? Dr. Henry Cloud, uh, one of my favorite authors, he's a psychologist, he, he says this. He says, you are ridiculously in charge of your life, that, uh, that, that you really have the opportunity to chart the course of your life. Or, or let me put it this way, uh, how much power are you willing to give someone who's hurt you in the past? I mean, I, I've talked to people where horrible things have happened to them. They've uh, dealt with physical abuse, sexual abuse as a child. And in something like that, you could see how that could be so impactful and destructive in someone's life. But I've seen again and again where people say, I am not going to let them continue to hurt me, that I am going to move forward in my life. Number two, we learn from him, do what is right, not what is deserved. Uh, we see this later on in the story. In fact, if we can go to the verse, 
It says, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, uh, and to give them provisions for their journey. What's happening there in, in this story is that Joseph's brothers, after a period of time, there was a famine in the land. In Israel, there was no food, and so they had to go to Egypt. They didn't know who this ruler of Egypt was, and when they saw Joseph, they didn't recognize him. And so Joseph, just think about it. Just think about if all the people who had hurt you in your life were in front of you and you could get back at them right then and there. Any of you have those fantasies? If you do, there's, there's doctors that can help you with that. The, uh, no, uh, but he, he could have said, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give them any food. I may not hurt them, but I don't have to sell them food. Let them starve. But again, he says, I'm not going to let their actions determine my reaction. See, the, the, the challenge that we often have when it comes to any area of difficulty is, do I want to be right? Do I, do, I, do I want to get what I deserve? Or do I want to make it right? And Joseph was at that place. And, and it's interesting because this is even before the time that Jesus came. But it so resonates with what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, where he says, uh, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Number three, we need to accept change will always start with someone, not everyone. That change will always start with someone not everyone. Uh, have you ever made this statement, I wish they just could? Have any of you ever felt like that? Yeah. And here's a problem with wishing. Wishing doesn't work very well. You know, I wish my dog would clean up after himself. That would be awesome. Uh, you know, I wish the Seahawks would have not passed the ball, rather they had run it the last play in the Super Bowl. You know, there are a lot of things I wish would have happened, uh, but wishing doesn't work. We have to actually engage and say, well, I'm going to forgive them when they don't deserve it. I'm not going to get drawn into the family drama. I'm going to have that difficult conversation. Joseph decided he was going to be that person, that he was going to respond in the opposite spirit in which they had responded to him. And in fact, we read this in the next verse. It says, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who sold you into Egypt, and now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And so, look at that. He's saying, you know, yes, you sold me into slavery. And one of the things that's interesting about Joseph is that he never denies the harm that was done to him. He doesn't say, and sometimes here's what we'll do. Oh, I'll just tell him it's okay and it doesn't matter. That didn't do anything. What you've done is just created a monster in a sense. If someone has bad behavior and you're affirming that, then the next time that happens, you're sort of part of the problem. But he says again and again, and we'll find in, in just a couple minutes, we'll read another verse. He says, yeah, you're right, you did hurt me. 
But it wasn't the end of me. Because when you gave up on me, that God didn't give up on me. And we see this again and again, that he has this just profound faith in God. And, we, and that really is the fourth thing we learn, is that he relentlessly looks for God's plan and purpose. Uh, here's the amazing thing about Joseph. Uh, he may have lost faith in his family, but he never loses faith in God. Uh, we read in Genesis 50, 20, it says this. Uh, it says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So here's how the story ends. So Joseph, uh, as he's gone through his life, as he's gone through these years of difficulty, he finds himself in this position of, of power and wisdom. When there, when there was this abundance in the land of Egypt, he convinced the ruler there to, to save food for the time of famine so they became wealthy. And then at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, their father dies. And Joseph's brothers are thinking, okay, this is really bad news because now Joseph is going to pay us back. And he goes, you know, you may have had incredibly uh, harmful intentions, but God knew what he was doing all along. And even though it wasn't God's plan that I experienced this pain, that God used it in an amazing way to save you, even the ones who were out to hurt me. And see, Joseph all along says, you know, I'm going to keep on moving. I'm going to respond with grace when the other responds with hatred. I'm going to be radically honest about my hurt, but I'm going to see God's plan and purpose in all of this. It reminds me of a verse we read in Romans 8:37, where it says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, as I talk about this and talked about this story of Joseph, you might say, uh, you know, that's great. That's a great story of the Bible. It's, you know, God really did a great thing for Joseph as he was struggling in his life and with his family. But, but what does that really mean for me? Well, one of the things I've seen over the years is when people are radically open to God's direction, His correction, to allowing him in their lives, that amazing things happen again and again. And during the next, uh, during the few weeks of this series, one of the things we're going to do, as we often do, we always see the stories of people whose lives have been changed by Jesus. But we're going to do something different. We're going to visit some of the people five, six, seven years later and sort of see what it means, not only that God worked in that moment, how that moment changed everything for a lifetime. This, we're going to hear today uh, from a couple who, as they came to Timberlake, uh, definitely weren't on the God path or the Jesus path. And there were just a lot of decisions that were uh, had caused a lot of destruction in their relationship. And the great thing about this great couple, uh, Derek and Nikki, is not only are they great friends of ours, uh, he's a pastor with me now. 
And when you, you hear that and you say, oh, yeah, well, this is where that story began. Take a look at this. 